Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is take number 10, and I'm going to nail it this time. Dang it. Did I say it's a great day to be alive? Did I say that? It is a great day to be alive. Did I say that I'm Paul Ollinger and you knew that? Well, now I'm saying it. And it is a great day to be alive. It's rainy here in Atlanta, Georgia, as it has been for almost all of February. I'm not in control of the rain. Neither are you. You know, I'm in control of, I'm in control of the environment inside of this office where I'm recording these beautiful sounds with my voice and a microphone. And so I'm practicing the Danish practice of hygge, H-Y-G-G-A, hygge. I've got some candles burning. I got a lamp on on the other side of the room, this otherwise rather dark room. It's a very relaxed and groovy vibe and it makes me happy. It's a little messy. I could clean up in here a little bit more. I got a lot of paperwork dangling about, dangling paperwork. A lot of it's tax-related, W-2s and 1099s. When you work in comedy clubs around the country, you get a lot of 1099s. And I don't want to brag or anything, but my average 1099 is almost $400. So things are going great. I mean, think about it annually. If you can do that a thousand times, you're making a pretty good, making a pretty good living. Anyway, let's talk about John Sephoric. He's my guest today, and he's the author of a new book. It's not new. It's a book called The Wealthy Gardener, Life Lessons on Prosperity Between Father and Son. I say it's not new because John self-published this book last year, and he did such a damn good job doing it. He sold over 30,000 copies, which, folks, is a lot of copies for almost any book. But if you self-publish your book, that's a whole hell of a lot of copies. And it became an Amazon bestseller. It was published in China and South Korea and he did such a good job that the people at Penguin Random House noticed, bought the book from him, and they're reissuing it February 25th, 2020. That's the day this podcast comes out. I don't know when you're listening to it, but it's still fresh. doesn't matter. There's no expiration date on the wisdom enclosed herein. Let's talk about some of that wisdom and his brief story. John was a chiropractor. He's from a modest background. He was a chiropractor. And after several years of practicing, he looked at how much he was working, a lot, how much he was saving, not very much, and said, I've got to fix this for myself. And he goes about starting a side business. And that side business is developing real estate, renovating real estate, and accumulating a bunch of rental properties that have grown into quite a substantial cash flow opportunity for him. Now you're thinking to yourself, Paul, I don't listen to crazy money for stories about personal finance, getting out of debt, fire, or other things like that. There are other fine podcasts available for that, but crazy money isn't one of them. Here, we explore the connection between money and happiness. I know, and that's why John's on the show. Did I already say this? I don't know. I'm going to go back and listen to it. Maybe I won't get it on the 10th take. Anyway, we talk a lot about the attributes of hard work, vision, and long-term thinking. And I think these are important now because these are attributes that are out of fashion, folks. These are attributes that are really being vilified in a lot of the public discourse today. And I think that is a very dangerous thing, that we get to a point where people believe that if somebody else is making money, somebody else is losing money. And that's not just wildly untrue. It absolutely runs counter to the spirit that makes people successful and has made the United States so great, if you want to get patriotic for a second. And so I think what John has to say is important. Let's talk a little bit about him. John Sephoric, he wrote and self-published The Wealthy Gardener, Life Lessons on Prosperity Between Father and Son. He sold over 30,000 copies. I said that. He retired with financial freedom at age 50. He achieved these dreams by thinking long-term and working really, really hard for decades while raising his family in rural Pennsylvania. He's an authority today on financial freedom, not because he studied wealth or learned about finance in school, like some knucklehead MBA. (laughs) He's an authority because he did it. He mastered his subject and he achieved the desired end in the real world using elbow grease and whole lots of hours of his life. He likes to say, we don't need information. We need more discipline to behave in a manner that leads to monetary accumulation. In other words, earning yourself back from the bank is a good thing. And if you want to make something happen, it's not going to happen by accident. So get off your ass and go make it happen, brother or sister. This is my conversation with John Sephoric. Yeah, there's always choices. They're not always convenient, not always comfortable. It takes a little bit of kahunas sometimes to to get what you want in life and make those hard choices and walk straight into discomfort. I fear what would become of my life if I'm sitting here telling my family that you can pursue your dreams, do what you want, guys, 
but I'm not working more than 40 hours a week. I would fear what it would look like would be a big fraud. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. John Seforic, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me, Paul. John, you're the author of The Wealthy Gardener, Life Lessons on Prosperity Between Father and Son. And having just finished the book, I think it's part Rich Dad, Poor Dad, part The Millionaire Next Door, part You're a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero, and part The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. So I have to ask you, just who the hell do you think you are to write such an ambitious book? Ah... I'll tell you who I am. I'm I'm a dad who wanted to uh, give his life lessons to his son as he was graduating from college. And yes, I read a lot of those books. I also read uh, The Richest Man in Babylon and Think and Grow Rich, and I, I get compared to that a lot. And it's it's definitely an influence of my life. I will make no qualms about the fact that I did not make it all up. I just lived this life, and I try to distill all of my best life lessons into a book that I thought my son could use as he graduated from college. Simple as that. And what form did that book take? Well, it comes together over time, right? So, you know, you have an idea of what you want vaguely. And then I realized that, okay, this is getting pretty big because over the course of 30 years, uh, you know, you grow a lot, you learn a lot. You, You don't just succeed by tripping over easy obstacles. My son was uh, volunteering to go through this book with me to read the life lessons, to to critique them and and debate kind of what I expect out of this conversation here. We go back and forth. He would play devil's advocate to this. I asked my son to consider what I was saying. I'm not preaching at you. I do believe that I have something worth saying about gaining wealth, financial freedom, because I reached my own financial freedom in life at the age of 50. And I just wanted to make the journey a little more a little simpler for him. I don't mean to make it easy, but you know, it's certainly easier if you know what you're doing. And I could pass those lessons along to him. I ended up putting it in a in a story that turned into a fictional book and a nonfiction book. And the reason for that was just to try to engage him a little more, to entertain a little more, and kind of go a little along the lines of I don't know, maybe Rich Dad, maybe along the lines of uh, Richest Man in Babylon. So I felt like that was a technique. I wasn't going to ask my poor son to sit down and go over. 80 lessons of my life and sit there and just take it. I, I certainly thought I had to entertain him as I do a reader now that it's a public book. That was important to me. Before we jump into the book, take us through your personal journey. How did you, you said you gained financial independence at 50. What was that journey like? Take us through some phases of that journey. Uh, middle-class upbringing. We had very little, but we had way more than we needed. A bunch of guys in the backyard in my neighborhood that played a lot of sports you know, in middle-class America, Western Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Steelers fan in the 1970s. Life nice. Was good. good time to be mean Joe Green, baby. Life was great. The immaculate um, reception. No doubt. That's that's when I grew up as a kid. So then you go through a Catholic upbringing where you, you know, you learn some things about money that I honestly had to unlearn. Uh, you know, the meek will inherit the land and a rich man can't fit through the eye of a needle. And I certainly had to unlearn a lot, a lot of things I feel as I got into life. The story of my life probably starts whenever I graduated. You know, I think people will graduate and say they've done something. But in truth, we graduate just to begin. And I <laughs> went the into truth? the world with a splash. You know, not like the single people out there that that have dull incomes, that have a little bit like a, a freer path. I was married within two months of graduation. Within three years, I have two kids. Within that same first year, I start my own business with nothing. So yeah, my 20s were a struggle, uh, no doubt about it. I had to become financially competent in order to breathe, in order to survive. You know, that's that's the life I lived in my 20s. What kind of business were you in? I graduated as a chiropractor. So that's where I had to make my living, Paul. That is an entrepreneurial business. It's not like we have a network of MDs referring to us at the time. It was 1990. I had $100,000 worth of debt after I married my wife. We combined our debt. She's a stay-at-home mother, so it was my family income bringing in everything for us. And all of a sudden, life wasn't too free, right? It's it's all about uh, providing and protecting your family. 
those are my priorities for money at the time. And, and I was, I was trying to do that. So you make it through your twenties or early thirties and you've got a good profession, but you're not living the financial life you want to lead. What was going on? Well, let's, let's back that up a little. Exactly. You, you know, I graduated at the age of 24 with a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and and people will typically say, well, geez, you gave, what, six years of your life maybe for, uh, you know, the opportunity cost to get this education. I say, that's wrong. No, I didn't. I gave, I gave that amount of education plus the amount of time that it, it took me to earn back my debt and get back to broke, right? I was broke at 18. Right. It took me to get to 32 <laughs> to be broke again. Yeah, right. That's, that's real, right? So the opportunity cost there is about 14 years. And so at around the age of 30, I don't know, life just gets serious. And I think we can all talk about that where finances mean more when you're somewhere around your 30s. And for me, I, it was just not, I was really uh, dissatisfied. I didn't have the direction that I wanted, even though I was doing everything right. I was an ambitious person. I wasn't wasting my time. And that's when I just really started uh, zeroing in on, on goals, financial goals. At the age of 30, I set a goal to be financially free at the age of 50. And what does that mean, financial freedom? We all have a different number. You know, I say the fire movement with different numbers than I certainly would have. Mine was $220,000 in residual income. That's what I wanted. Where'd you come up with that number? That's a lot of dough in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. It is a lot of dough. But where did that come with that number? I really grabbed it out of the air. I felt like my family could live on $120,000, family of four. Right. If you ask my son what my goals were growing up, I was very transparent. When he was growing up, my goal was to grow it from it. I wanted a business that would not only feed me, but would also feed itself. And so it becomes a snowball. And so next year's increased business is bought by this year's profits. Right. So grow it from it was a phrase he knows well. I felt like I could do all that with taxes and this and that. And, you know, you get up there with a number like that. Yeah, it's a big number, but that's what goals are for. They're, they're not for the things that you that you can figure out on a paper. I mean, you just need discipline for that. Goals stretch you. There's some power to that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm sure we're going to get into it because my book is very explicit about the mental aspects of what I went through. We'll jump into the book in just a minute, but let's talk a little bit more. Okay, so you made this, you're 32. And by the way, I was ecstatic to become broke again at 32 myself yeah, because that's when I paid off my business school loans. And uh, as I've said many times on this podcast, the richest I've ever felt in my life is the day I paid off my student loans. I've had lots cooler stuff happen from like a numbers perspective in the decades since then. But like that day you buy your freedom back is a really great day. I don't know that in the next generation, we're going to have to figure out ways to uh, keep from crippling them on student debt. But if I could add to that, my favorite day, I still remember when I got a, my first rental and I had, I had a check come to me on the first month that I rented it. And that was the first money of my life that I didn't earn. Okay. Well, that's exactly, <laughs> you did earn it. Let, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. Okay. So you make this decision when you're 30 or 32 that you want to be financially independent at 50. Well, congratulations. You've already got a full-time job. How the hell are you going to get there? Exactly. So I can either um, take ownership from my life or make excuses. I mean, what is really my option right now? If you're 30 and you want more, what can you do? And that's, that was the difficulty facing me. So yeah, I, I had a lot, a lot of the constraints. I have a family. You know, I have all the excuses everybody else has. Well, I wanted to protect that family. I wanted to provide for that family. I wanted to, I had a very, very big why. Okay, so I wanted to be free eventually in my life as well. And so I really believe in the why. It'll sustain the fuel and the, and the persistence. But you're asking, what do I do? You've got to eventually, once you get the, the inside mental aspects of, of success down, and it becomes a part of you, you have to rearrange your schedule. You just have to. Uh, time management is not, it's not something that's a possibility. What you do is what you get. You know, it's a sowing or reaping. It's a big part of the, the wealthy garden or the, the, the law of the farm. You rope, you, you reap and you sow. So you got to get a hold of that time schedule. So yeah, I definitely have a lot of hours in my week, despite the fact that I have a full-time job, just like we all do. And you committed to a whole other activity, a craft almost that you started diving into in the real estate flipping and rental housing business. Is that correct? You know what? I, I say this. There's a million different ways to get there, right? What I dove into, in my mind, is not what the world saw. What I dove into was a cash flow business. I didn't care if I was selling bubblegum. I wasn't in love with the properties. I wasn't in love with the real estate. What I was looking for was passive income. And there's a lot of different vehicles for that. 
So rentals, yeah, that became a vehicle for me. But I was a cash flow manager. Understand that everybody saw the, the properties. Well, that was just the physical stuff, right? It's, there's a cash flow behind it all. That's what I was building. And that's what everybody didn't see. So yeah, I entered this with the idea that I would just manage the workers. At one point early on, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of four different teams while working a full-time business. Gets harder and harder throughout the years. And so now I, I'm down to two different teams somewhere by the end of my 30s. By the end of my 40s, I'm down to one team I have to manage because uh, it's just harder and harder in this business because I, I really believe because of the cell phone, these guys can't, they're always sitting on buckets staring at cell phones now. It's really bad for real estate. <laughs> at the end of my 40s, I'm like, okay, everybody's cell phone in the bucket. Give me, put it in the bucket or get out of here. Half of them leave. How many hours a week were you working after your full-time gig at the chiropractic office to try to develop this cash flow business? Initially, I would say that I would devote maybe four or five hours a week to it. You have to understand that the money's made in, and there's always these key things that you do, no matter what your business is. The money is made in buying the house at the right price. The rest of it just follows that decision. You're either going to make money or not make money based on that. So that is the primary goal in real estate, finding it. Then managing the teams is the secondary goal. Four to five hours, I entered this business saying, I'm not going to pick up a paintbrush. Well, never say never, right? That was the initial goal. And so you, sometimes you tiptoe into the water organically and you get yourself deeper and deeper into things. And just like this book, you know, you, it turns out to be a bigger process than you originally envisioned. And thank God you don't know what you're really getting into. You might not, not undertake it. You know, so that's how it worked for me. In the past 18 or 20 years, you've had a side gig investing in real estate that has allowed you to grow your passive income to $220,000 a year. And you've achieved this, but you had a bigger aim in sharing some of these lessons. And I know you wanted to share them with your son. Was this book a first attempt for you to sort of write your legacy? Timing was, was interesting because in my life, I had reached financial freedom and I got to a point where, okay, I need a new direction now. Like this has been a goal I pursued so well. I just wanted to be a I wanted to have no fences in my life. I wanted to be free at that point. And so about that time, my brother had a tragic accident. Uh, he died and got run over by a car in a parking lot. Yeah. That certainly leads you to contemplate life at a different level. And so here I was thinking, thinking a lot, what's going to happen when I die? What's gonna, we're all going to pass on. All of a sudden, that's right in your face. You know, your, your only sibling you grow up with, you know, I'm looking at him in a casket. At the same time, my son is coming out of college and he and I have always been just super close. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that he volunteered to, to do this. You know, he's, he's been an open-minded son all his life. He agreed. I said, I'm thinking about writing a book before I pass. Uh, maybe it would be kind of stupid for me to just pass and not tell you what, what it took to get here. This was quite a quest. And so, yeah, do I have a deeper why for the book? Sure. It's definitely on a deeper level. And I think that's why it's, um, maybe that's why I shared so much of the secrets that people don't know. You know, I, I, it's not a book about just what you do out there in the world and what everybody sees. It's kind of the secret life where people don't know what goes through your mind, the, the secrets that you don't tell everybody, the wor what the world doesn't see. I wanted that kind of a book. So my son would understand the mindset of wealth and the self-mastery that's required to earn it. And that was a goal for me. No question about it. And so the book is half fiction, half nonfiction. And just for our listeners, lay out the format. Each chapter begins with a parable through the lens of the wealthy gardener, who's a very wise man. He has different people in his life with whom he shares different kinds of lessons based on their needs as individuals. And then after that, you share sort of some insights from your experience that actually happen. There's dozens and dozens of insights in the book. If you're asked to sort of summarize it in, you know, an elevator pitch, what would the lessons be that you would want to mention to the person with you on that elevator? <laughs> That's a question, right? Uh, there's there's 85 lessons in this book, something like that. And so I was- And, and as I said to you the other day, when we did a pre-interview, I mean, it really could be read as meditations at night or in the morning. It doesn't have to be you know, consumed like a novel, you could read this over time and just let these, these lessons marinate with you. So the format is, is easily digestible. I have had people say that, that they will use it as a devotional where they'll read, you know, chapters are in four pages. So in the morning, they might read of four pages. That was just their deal. Uh, nighttime before bed, four pages, whatever. Uh, it gets you through the book. I would say that uh, for me, the, the whole thing was uh, truly about the self-mastery of, of achievement. Uh, you may call it money in my case. That was certainly a goal for me, and I, I will defend uh, the purpose of money to people. It was important. 
but whatever the goal is, you know, I think we all have have certain aspirations in life. We want to fulfill those things, and we have to learn these lessons. And sometimes we learn them over and over and over and over, and we never quite get them. And so sometimes I, I felt like I just wanted to put it down in a book, distill everything I learned, and say, Mike, my son, Mike, here's what I know, pal. Take the baton from here. And I handed it to him, and he's now off and running in his own career. He's 24, 25 now. It was important for me that just to teach him the lessons of of success that I had to do in the middle class, you know, the middle class way to do it. You say some things in the defense of money, which, you know, it's not terribly fashionable these days. You go even further and say things that would be considered impolitic at the very least. You say things like we get in life, the poorest conditions we will tolerate. You go on to say, we are never unaccountable for our financial conditions. Staying in the wrong career is our fault. Living with insecurity is our fault. Having too little time is our fault. Not amassing savings is our fault. Boy, there's a lot of people who might have some problems with that out there. What do you, what do you say to them? I will say that I was telling my son how to achieve. I can tell you this, Paul. If I look back over my own life, and let me just take it back to, a, to an example everybody can first understand. I was a high school basketball player. I was in freshman year of high school. I was, I was scoring 30 points a game. Sophomore year comes up, I'm scoring 30 points a game. My junior year of high school, I sat the bench the entire year. Right. Why is that? Why is that? It doesn't matter why that is, right? No, that's my point exactly. Everybody that's in that gymnasium will say the coach had something out for me. But even at that time, it wasn't in my DNA to sit down and make excuses about that. I'll tell you why it is in my mind, because I didn't make the choice so obvious to that coach that he had no decision but to play me. It's my fault. I've always lived with this, just this ownership, and it's not a comfortable, like everything that you've mentioned right now, I understand it's not going to be comfortable to people that don't have the conditions they want. Well, it wasn't comfortable for me either when I had to accept full responsibility for my life. I'm not talking from a pedestal of having a lot of money all my life, okay? My parents started in a half a trailer, not a trailer, half a trailer. <laughs> Starter trailer. Yeah, so don't talk to me about privilege. Uh, that's not where I come from. My dad ended up as being a millionaire over his course of his life. In respect to me, he never gave me a dime. It was a blessing. He let me struggle and feel hunger. He let me understand the ownership of my own life. So I'm not speaking to my son about some platitude, like I'm better than others. This is just what you have to expect. If you can take it, the discomfort will help you. It'll push you. It'll drive you. Or you can make excuses. I don't see another option. You, either, you just either try to comfort yourself with your conditions and say, it's okay. I'm giving my best. Or you can say, no, I own this and it's not okay for me. And that's just the, the life I lived. And I, I do stand by that. I'll, I'll defend those things to the death because I do think people have choices. They're just uncomfortable, inconvenient choices. And I lived it. I moved across the country as a choice. I worked in my free time as a choice, but only because I accepted full ownership. I could have made excuses or I can accept full ownership. That's where that all comes from. So politically incorrect, well, the hell with it. I'm trying to tell people how to actually win. Right. You know, so that's, <laughs> right. Where I, that's where I am. You don't win by making excuses. And, and it can be somebody else's fault that you haven't succeeded, but it still doesn't change your personal circumstance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you just got to accept where you are. I mean, that's, that's really it. This, now, this is it. I accept this and I accept the burden of getting myself out of it. That's in incredibly important to me. By the way, you talking about riding the bench in high school, in Western Pennsylvania reminds me of the Tom Cruise movie, All the Right Moves. Do you remember that? <laughs> remember that when he was a he was a football player with all the talent, but with a bad attitude and his coach, who I believe was Craig T. Nelson, wrote him hard. Let me tell you, as a guy growing up in Western Pennsylvania, there's not a whole lot a lot of things in this world more important than sports. Okay. Right. This is the pinnacle of life. And so yeah, God, you know, people will never know what, what that means. It sounds like a stupid little thing a guy sitting on a bench in a basketball game. I get it. It's not very big in the scope of things. But when that's your one goal in high school, people forget that that's what you got. That's that's where you are. That's your garden right now. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So let me make an awkward segue. So to tie those two things together. So you were not in high school giving basketball your sacred effort. Would you say that? A sacred effort? No. Because I define that a little differently. Although I gave a better effort than everybody else. Yes. Okay, so let's define what sacred effort is, because I think there's some terms you come up with in the book that many of which come back to hard work and self-discipline. So let's talk about what a sacred effort is. 
Okay, once again, I, I don't, I don't uh, invent the terms, right? So, so uh, Frederick Douglass is listening to uh, to Abraham Lincoln's speech. I think the story is in there, and Lincoln wants to know from Frederick Douglass how did the speech go? And basically, Frederick Douglass said, you know, Mr. President, it was a sacred effort, and that's the last time he saw him. Right? Mm. A sacred effort to me means that if you put a gun to my head and tell me to give more. I'm going to take the bullet. Like we all have these times in life when we stretch, when we, you might say we give our life for it. I don't care if you're an adult with kids and you go back to college, you better put a sacred effort out. It's going to take all of you, your whole soul, kind of the way this book did for me. It's able to, you're able to just give it all and leave nothing less. And I can tell you in my own life, that is the effort that is necessary for me to avoid regrets. I can take any failure in the world if I give a sacred effort. Bring it on. There's there's a point where you say, take the test, flunk me, I don't care, I'm not trying anymore. That's a sacred effort. In the same vein, you really emphasize to the reader and to your son that results aren't the focus. The process should be the focus. And if you're giving your sacred effort in the process, the results will take care of themselves. Yes and no. No, I misread that one. Yeah, yeah, no, let me clarify. I mean, I, I try to be clear, right? So no doubt about it. You you know, I, I am a believer in results, right? You have to get feedback because you can always alter your input. What you're doing can be altered. It's, you know, you got to do the right things and you got to do them in the right intensity and you have to do them with enough hours. Like those are the kind of things that lead to impact. My great-grandfather was a coal miner. He worked hard. That's, he can give a sacred effort in that coal mine, but he's still going to die of black lung disease like he did without a whole lot of results in his life. How old was he when he died? Probably uh, late 50s. I never met the man. Oh, and it's a, it's a sad story because he was recruited for Major League Baseball, right? So he had this life ahead of him. He could have chosen that path, and he didn't. He chose to be a coal miner. It didn't pay a lot to be a, a baseball baseball player back then, right? So he chose a, a job in a coal mine that didn't pay well either, but it looked a lot more stable for raising a family. It's a sad story. And he died of black lung disease. It's really important. It's, it's the 80-20 stuff, right? You, you have to stick, you have to focus on the things that actually move the needle in life. So yeah, I'm all about the effort and the intensity and the hours of work. You're just, without working your ass off, you're just not going to get results that matter in life. But you also have to really focus and be clever and be strategic about what you are doing. And so that's that's a big part of it. No question about it. You're at once a dreamer and also somewhat unromantic about work. You say work is a friend, not a lover. What do you mean by that? It's a very practical way to look at it. I can speak to my son. I can speak to my from my own life about this, that you see the whole idea of the entitled millennial, like, you, you know, these guys are battling this whole idea that they're dreamers and they never do anything and they jump, they hop jobs. And I can understand them. I was on the crest of that wave. All right. When I was in my twenties, I read a book called do what you love. The money will follow. Mm. And when I expected life to be such a passion fest, when I expected <laughs> to have no burdens and no problems within my days, let me show you who's really miserable in life with that false expectation. Yeah. So, no, a friendship is something you can be comfortable with, a person you'd like to be with. A passionate lover, I'll leave that for another area of your life. But I, th I think a friendship's a good thing, even in a relationship when you are passionate. It's the friendship that matters. And I think that's, that's, that's something you trust. And work can be like that. You can, you can give to it, but it better give back to you or else you better find different work. Is it naive to want to love our work? Paul, I want to love my work. I, I can't say that I don't. I would say that... I would say that want to love your work with the understanding that all work is problems. If you don't have a problem, you don't have work, period. Okay. Right. So when you approach life like that, yeah, it's, it's kind of like we can choose our problems. We don't necessarily choose what we're passionate about, but I'm more fitted over here with this set of problems versus this set of problems over here. Look at your own life. I mean, what a fascinating story. Okay. You certainly made the leap going from Facebook over to full-time comedy. Yep. I mean, I would love to hear that story, you know, because- no, I'm you, glad you, you asked, John. Here's my story. <laughs> my next question was, is chasing one's dream a fool's errand? And that's one I struggle with daily because I do love what I do when I have a chance to do it, but it's a lot of work to get the right to do it until you reach a certain level of 
both skill and notoriety or fame in this business. In this podcast, this doesn't feel like work. This feels like these are things I want to do. I want to read books that are interesting and talk to the authors and learn. Like that's not work to me. Then again, it's also not an income, not yet at least. So it's kind of like, well, I know I'm doing what I want to do, but if I had to pay my mortgage doing it, I wouldn't be able to. Well, you know, I think we can all speak for each other and I, uh, ourselves, I mean, and I, I can tell you that I didn't have the balls uh, to, to, to make the leap that you might have. I probably uh, had, you know, four or five years where I felt compelled to write this book for my son. I felt like I was worthy of it. I've achieved something that I could actually speak of and on, but I didn't have the, I didn't have the kahunas to do what you're talking about. I had a family to feed, you know, with two kids, a wife, and my wife went back to college and I had to provide. And I think that's the, that's what life is. Like, so we have to figure out, okay, can we pursue? What can we pursue? I love, I love the stories like you, where you say, okay, I, obviously you didn't jump off a bridge. You know, you, you certainly had things laid up uh, in your life to enable yourself to make that leap. And let's talk about that. What allowed you to make that leap? because you just said you didn't have a mortgage. So I'm saying money did provide a little bit of the freedom for you to do that. I don't want to say self-mastery, but it's just knowing when you are in a position to do something. I've wanted to do comedy and I did do it for two years full-time, 05 to 07, but then I got engaged and was like, well, I want to have a family and providing for my family is more important than indulging this passion of mine. But 12 years later, when I have the wherewithal to do it, I chose to do it now. And, and it's, it's kind of like, it seems to me, you waited to write your book until you had achieved the level of financial preparedness to do so. And for that reason, you really had the opportunity to focus and produce this, this product that is, you waited to write this book until the time when you were ready, when you had achieved that level of passive income. So I think when, when he talks about chasing your dreams and self-mastery, it's what I say is, hey, wait until you're ready to do it. Wait until you can really take care of all the things that are your first priority. Like you even say in your book, and I do want to talk about your book, not about me, but you talk about the 40-hour work week. You basically say the 40-hour work week is not a luxury. It's an obligation. It is the minimum of what each of us should be doing to meet our obligations to ourselves and our family. Yeah, politically incorrect, right? Does it make you feel uncomfortable out there? It's, it's like, uh, <laughs> I live in Atlanta, man. This is a red state. No, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. I like hearing it. It's just it, there's not a lot of people saying that kind of stuff today. You know what, Paul? Let me say this. I fear what would become of my life if I'm sitting here telling my family that you can pursue your dreams, do what you want, guys, but I'm not working more than 40 hours a week. Right. I would fear what would become of my life. What I would look like would be a big fraud because all of a sudden I'm just getting by. All right. I needed to, to achieve my goals. If I'm not putting in the actions, but I'm speaking a different lesson to them, God, what a fraud I would look like. Right. So, Let's say whenever you're you're at Facebook, do you get off of work at you know after forty hours and then you can't do comedy now because you've already done your forty hours, or do you pursue your goal there? I think those are the questions that we all have to decide. I'm not saying that you should everybody should be a, a consumer and go after wealth and, and just be obsessed over it, but I do say that we have to choose our own life. And I think once uh, you know you get the vision, I'll tell you a quote I really like: "We need to have the vision." of the things we want in this life. And we have to have the vision of what we're willing to give to get those things. Do you know who said that? I don't know who said it. You, in your book. It was beautiful. <laughs> I said that, really? It was beautiful. Oh, it, man. I couldn't, Paul, I, I wrote a book. I stressed over words. I couldn't beat it. Yeah, exactly. You need a vision for your life. And that's for us to choose. And then you also have to accept the price that comes with that vision. And if you get stoked enough on the vision, the price doesn't feel like work. It just feels like doing something that you like to do to get to where you want. Yeah. You say we pay the price of an extraordinary life or we pay the regrets of an average life. I'm sorry. This is the world I live in, you know, where it's real and I had to overcome it. I had to climb this mountain. But I do think getting back to your point about how we get to do things and we get the power of doing things later on in life, I say that as we get this power, as we become more and more financially stable, we have the power now to do 
less of the things we dread and more of the things we love. We do see a shift in those things. Like I can pull out and start telling people what to do in real estate later on in my career, as opposed to actually being in the mess myself. You know, I'm pointing fingers now. I'm just managing people and managing cash. And that's a heck of a lot better place than being in the work of it all. Okay. But you're where you wanted to be, but let's go back to the earlier years while you're just beginning. You talk a lot about the importance of envisioning prosperity and mental discipline is a big part of your message here. So say I'm that 30 year old person who's starting to say, God, how do I, how do I possibly build this? How do I get myself to where I'm 50, where I can pay for my kid's college and have a retirement? You talk about a couple of different things. Why is envisioning prosperity so important and the concept of a five-year crusade? Well, that's just it now. Okay, so if you're asking me at the age of 30, what does a person do? Well, let me tell you. In my past, what did I do? Uh, like I said, I was just trying to get out of debt then. So what did I do? Right. I truly uh, tried to get a vision of a passive income of $220,000. You don't just repeat those words, but you try to build faith and you try to repeat it over and over to you. You can build faith in something. You know, it's it's not hokey pokey. It's it's just like in sports. You don't walk onto that basketball court or walk into a wrestling match without preparing your mind. I can't imagine what it's like to walk onto a stage and do comedy. I would pee my pants. You'd have to really, you know, raise yourself, raise your game. It's all mental. You know, I, one of my favorite quotes is Yogi Berra, right? He says, Baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical, right? right? It's so important. Uh, so you have to get the mindset of wealth and know why you want it. If that's what you do, whatever you want in life, right? I needed that. I'm not sure everybody needs that as much as I did, but I grew up in the middle class and I had to break free of some of that, you know, some of that thinking if I wanted to be different from my culture. So for me, I wrote out a check. I made an imaginary check. I wrote out 220,000. I wrote out my 50th birthday on this check. I sat it. I, I sat it on a board. I did. I did those kind of things. I read affirmations over and over, and I exposed those in the book. Exactly what I did and what exactly what I said. I have a sauna in my house, a cedar sauna, and I compare it to. I have friends at a monastery, Sister Maria, and these guys. They're just studs. They're really great people. They have a place in their monastery. Each of them, they call a cell, where nobody enters but them. My sauna is my cell. That's where I go to be alone and to work on me the part of the world that nobody sees, the beliefs that I have to have in my life, uh, the the goals that I have to focus my faith on. I'm a big believer of focused faith. Use it like a power. It's like a laser. Focus your faith on something. You, you have the control of that. Like, what can we control in this world? So it was all about the mental stuff first. No question about it. I had to build myself, build myself. But I was, I was used to that through sports. So it came kind of naturally to me. But then after that, once you do that, you have to walk onto the field. You have to be a warrior. You have to get out there and rearrange your schedule. Look at your time. You know, I, I see people say, well, you know, here's how you have personal finance. Here's how you get wealthy. You, you figure out how to cut your TV bill from this amount down to $20. That's part of it. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Turn the damn thing off. You know, <laughs> the TV, you're not losing $80 a month on your TV bill. You're losing 40000 by sitting on your ass. Get off, the t- get off the couch. There's so much work to be done. And people forget about that. We all call ourselves stuck. No, 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 no. Turn it off. I'm sorry. Get your time management down. It's so important. So that was part of it. But you, all, you talk about how you do 150 push-ups every morning. And I'm going to get back to your five-year crusade through this lens, right? So you do 150 push-ups every morning. And the hardest part isn't, it's easy to do them, but it's easier not to do them. And so I think with the idea of a five-year crusade is that, we think about what we want to accomplish, but the goal appears to be so far in the distance that we are not sure or are hesitant to take the first step. But if you think about things in five-year plans, you actually can, if you break that down into 365 days of doing 150 push-ups, it's actually doable. So what does that look like from a financial perspective? Yeah, thank you for bringing me back to the question that I did not answer. I'm pretty good at this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, um, so, okay. So in five years, it just means a lot to me because I have found that my life changes in every aspect, every five years. And if a listener out there wants to think about that, just go back five years from right now in the past, like who were you surrounded by? What were your goals? Where were you back in 2014? How old were you? Who surrounded you? What job did you have? You see, you see everything, every condition in your life can be changed within five years. Absolutely everything, including getting out of debt, 
everything. And you need to go through a sacrifice. I'm sorry. It's a temporary sacrifice where you've got to give it all. But at the end of that five years, the sacrifice is over. But the change lasts. It just lasts. You made the changes. So absolutely, it's manageable enough because it's long enough to really accomplish stuff, everything. But it's short enough that we can actually put landmarks out there and say, okay, I can, I can sink my teeth into five years. For example, right now, I, I'm not speaking from theory. I'm a warrior from the world, right? I know what I'm going to be doing right up until 2023. It's almost like I'm looking at the end of a pier. I don't know what happens beyond that because my goals are right there. Yeah. We'll figure that out when we get to the end of that pier. Speaking of the end of the pier, you set this very lofty goal of this amount of passive income. And you also say that when you when you turn 50 and exceeded it, you seem surprised to find little euphoria at that accomplishment and actually a state of benevolent melancholy or vague discontent. Absolutely. What was going on there? Because, I mean, this you hit your goal. Isn't everything supposed to be perfect when you achieve your financial goals? Let me address one of those at a time because you, you said a mouthful. You bundled a few things up there, right? So- the vague familiarity. So when you're doing it right, when you're imagining what you want in your life, I don't care if you're an Olympic athlete, you're looking to dive off that diving board and do a, a, a some sort of a, a tripled Lindsay dive, spin, whatever. When it happens, you've been there and you feel like, okay, this is just familiar. So that's when I do it right. I've been there a million times in my mind. I see it now, but I've been here, right? I've imagined it with a lot of faith. So that's number one. Number two, I, I want, and I would like to address this because people always say, well, money doesn't cause happiness. I got to my goals and I'm not happy. See, money can be a component of your happiness. It can be a component just like health for your happiness, just like your relationships for your happiness, without being the secret of happiness. I'm not sure there's a fountain of youth from which bubbles happiness, but it is a component of life that does take away a lot of worry. It allows you to protect and provide for your family. It allows you to, to walk along the beach with your wife or your husband without having your mind preoccupied about Monday. You can take a walk in the woods on a Tuesday afternoon. There's a lot of goodness to money without it being the necessarily the, the secret of happiness. So I'll defend that one. And when I got to this point right here, I think that you get to a point, you pass a goal. And what happened to me was I needed a new direction. I can't tell you how many times in my life I'll get this feeling of not necessarily like the, the carrot where you say, oh my God, I want it. I, I want this. Sometimes I get a feeling of, okay, I'm just not quite happy here. I'm, I'm feeling a, a vague discontentment here. And it's real important for me to sit in that feeling and to figure out what that message is for my life. I do believe that that comes upon me in order to pro provide some sort of instruction. Sometimes a book comes into my life a direction comes into my life. So sorry to interrupt you, but has meditation in your sauna helped you? Is that, is that where you examine those feelings and try to get a better, deeper understanding uh, as to where they come from? That's definitely where you don't run from it. Okay. People can run from that vague melancholy, if you want to call it that, with motion, with distractions, running around in their car, going to the gym, doing a million different things. Uh, you really, you know... I, I, Hey, dog, what's up? So, so, so that's my main man, Buddy, upstairs. Hey, Buddy. Who my wife is in charge of. That's fine. What he, kind of dog is Buddy? Oh, Buddy's a Bichon. He's, he's a badass little guy. Oh, nice. Little, little white fluffy dog. And my contractors make fun of me because sometimes I'll park, uh, I'll park my pickup truck with my little white fluffy dog when I come on site. <laughs> you don't want to hear what they say. Let them know who's who. Sorry, we're, we're talking about meditation. You know what, Paul? To me, meditation is a centering it's something I do that gives me uh, strength renewed throughout the days. Absolutely. It lets me get in touch with, with those kind of feelings where you're saying, well, I'm not quite happy and I don't know why. There's instruction in all of that. Absolutely. For me, there is. And usually when I feel that, I've, I've grown really familiar with that feeling that, okay, it's, all right, John, it's time to figure this out. What's the meaning of your discontent now? And then it usually leads to good things. It's not something to run from. I, I don't drink it away. I don't watch TV it away. I don't do all these kind of things. I, I face it. I sit in it a lot. If I ever feel that, that's when I slow down, when I start to feel that way. Sure. It led me to write the book after I got to be the age of 50 and my brother dies and everything like that. Yeah, that feeling, you'll notice, went away when I started pursuing this other direction, which was the book and, and giving my lessons to my son and 
for some reason, it lifted. And so I, I believe the lesson of it, don't run from it. We, can, we have the strength to stay within discomfort and learn the lessons it's trying to tell us. John, another one of the uh, quotes in your book that might not resonate with the current zeitgeist is, is this, if you're not getting the income you want from life, you must think about your service in terms of the income formula. What is the income formula? Well, the income formula I learned from Earl Nightingale when I was very young, and Earl Nightingale was my mentor, more so than my own father when it comes to how to succeed in this world. And his formula came down to four things. Basically, he would say, it's the need for what we do, how well we do what we do, the difficulty in replacing us, and how many people we serve. So if I understand your question even more uh, more than what you're asking, you're being nice to me, I understand you're saying, basically, wait a minute, there's people that do mission work. Is their job not important? Is it not worthy? There's nurses who save, you know, save lives. Is their job not worthy? And we're not talking about self-worth here. Let's just get that straight from the start. Teachers, I can't think of a more honorable service, although I think they're pretty bad at math because they don't understand what their pension's really worth. You know, it takes me maybe $2 million to get with, you know, in savings what they get in their pensions. But let's talk about those, those other people that are, they have good jobs. They're serving humanity. They're doing things. I understand that there are good purposes that don't make money. You're talking about the dynamics of the marketplace though. That's it. I'm talking about economics. I'm talking about like, I get it. There's hedge fund managers that, that make a gazillion dollars and they might not do too much for humanity. I understand it all. I'm talking to the 70% of the people out here that are like you and I, we have children we have families, we have jobs, we have aspirations. And for us to figure this out, it's just, it's going to be a lot more maneuverable if we think about what we're doing and how well we're doing it and how many people we serve. And I think the thing that gets missed a lot of times is, wait a minute, I'm just working at a, at a lumber plant. I'm just working at a steel company. Wait a minute. I have seen this in my life over and over and over and over where it's, don't forget the how well you do what you do. Uh, the remarkability gets you promoted. And I can tell you, some of my really close friends are supervisors. They moved up to plant managers. People always make excuses. I'm stuck, but they don't think about, you can change careers. I understand how hard it is, but you do have choices to steer in a different direction. Just take one course this way and your whole life will be different in five years. How well you do what you do, give it every day. You think that won't be noticed? It will be. People are looking for managers where we all are right now. It's who's going to get that position? Well, the people given it. Uh, how many people we serve? Uh, no doubt about it. It's that's a really important thing for for an entrepreneur. Uh, for I don't know in, in corporate world, I suppose it's maybe not as as specific as it is in the entrepreneurial world like me. But those four factors, and I, I know I'm getting around this really long, but uh, they, I get back to the fact that you you will earn more money when you're in a more exclusive job doing something with a remarkable skill level. And we always had to think of that. I always had to do that with my own self, with, with real estate, with chiropractic. And it led to a lot of excess money once I got it all figured out. And you can change the dynamics of those inputs through like a five-year crusade, right? And it takes, it seems to me that one of the things, the subtext of a lot of what you talk about is delayed gratification. You specifically say discipline is choosing between what we want now and what we want most. You took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say that very thing. And you know what, Paul, I, I, I get it. I, you know, people will say, well, it's different for me. I wrote a, stop it. I used to drive a pickup truck with rust on it. My clinic was once in a veterinarian's basement. I moved into the best clinic in our town. I bought it. I lived in, in houses where I bought as foreclosures and fixed them up. I lived in a duplex, in my very first house, but now I own over a hundred houses, right? Free and clear. So, don't talk to me about, about what you want. Show me. Show me your actions. They, they speak louder than words, right? And I'm talking from a standpoint of having done it. So don't think that I'm preaching to you. I, I'm, I'm preaching to my son, maybe. But at the same time, he witnessed it all. And so, yeah, there's always choices. They're not always convenient. And they're, they're not always comfortable. And, but it takes, it takes a little bit of kahunas sometimes to, to get what you want in life and make those hard choices and walk straight into discomfort. At the same time I was reading your book, I was reading Michael Singer, who wrote The Untethered Soul. I was reading his book, The Surrender Experiment, which is all about how his career, for those people who don't know who Michael Singer is, he's a big, big meditation guy, big yoga guy. 
And he's also a highly accomplished corporate executive who is now much more in the guru space. But his book was all about how he just accepted what life gave him. And every time he did and opened himself up, it actually took him in the right direction. Now you have, you seem to have a different approach in the sense that you have very specific goals, but you also have the side where you're like, what's going to happen is going to happen. And the more you commit to a process, the right thing ends up happening. I will say this. I believe that we can have a power within the human mind of consciousness to direct our will. I'm not a believer in accepting everything that comes into my life. I, I, I know that that's a very comforting idea that everything happens for a reason. I'm going to accept <laughs> it. Well, I'm, I'm not there yet. Okay. I, I definitely feel like I like to be the captain of my ship, right? Yeah. I, I like to believe that I, uh, again, it's total ownership. Uh, I don't like this. It's my job to get me out of this. It does run in conflict with the peacefulness of meditation. I understand that. But in my, my own working philosophy throughout my life, what served me best was saying, I don't like this. How do I change this without it destroying my spirit? And, and the whole thing with goals is to see everything around you totally discordant with the ideas, you, the vision you have in your head. And it's not happening fast enough, but it can't break you down. You have to maintain that spirit of confidence, invincibility while you're out there in the battle. It, it's really important day to day to day to stay mentally focused and in, a, in your peak state. Don't get worn down by it. It's going to be long. Like you said about it's long for you with uh, the comedy. Well, yeah, that's why nobody's there. Like it, it's a test of our soul, right? The, the persistence we're willing to give it, the why, what do we want? Those are the kind of things that speak to me. And I think there's a persistent voice within us that we just can't get away from unless we just distract ourselves like crazy. And that's what we have to follow. So along those lines, I don't mean to say that you've left yourself open to the will of the universe. I mean, you've been very purposeful in the way you've gone at this, but you've also rolled with a bunch of punches as you, as one must in a career, but you've also been very committed to this book. And I'm interested to know, has this book, which is a departure from your traditional career, has it opened doors for you that you didn't anticipate? Besides this amazing podcast that you're on right now, what other what other life-changing opportunities has it brought your way? Because your goal wasn't to write this book to be a famous author. Your goal was to write it to be of service to your son. But when you Agreed. do things for the right reason, sometimes other good things happen. Agreed. I agree, Paul. I'm telling you, I don't think that if my goal was to write a book for the public, I fear... Uh, that I might not have had the persistence to finish this monster. It, it took me three years. And I'm not talking about writing in the margins of my day. I was talking about 40 to 50 hours a week sitting alone in a basement. You might as well just hand a ticket. Here's three years of my life for this book. Right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what I gave. Yeah. Only, only because every Sunday I would send these things off to my son. He was going then to Temple University. He would come back on a Sunday. We would talk on the phone. We would discuss these things. We would debate them. Devil's advocate back and forth. So meaningful for a father and a son. And it just brought us, you know, we we're close to begin with, but you know, they're they're distant. That process every Sunday was it was what kept it going for years. It was really challenging for me to decide to make this thing public. You know, this is more of a who do you think you are? I, I definitely don't have this uh, this narcissistic idea that the world needs to know from John Sephoric. But then, you know, my son and I are talking and talking and talking, and I was thinking about it. You know, I've, I have this wall of uh, these exceptional people where I, I read biographies nonstop, and I, my favorite ones are on a wall. I get back to, again, exactly where, you know, where I come from. The why is so important. What is your purpose for doing what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, I, I get it that, uh, you know, you're going to look at money and say, well, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people that I don't admire that, that have a lot of money. Okay. That doesn't mean it's not good for you. You know, you yeah. can still be a good person with money. All right, that the world needs a lot of good people with money, uh, so it doesn't vilify it. And so I think that uh, the why is so important. What's your purpose? What's your cause? Like for me, my why was so altruistic. I didn't have a choice. I had to protect my family. I had to come out of this uh, state of vulnerability. And for some reason, I'll never understand. I needed to have freedom. That was just a requirement for me on this planet before I died. And that's what money gave to me. And you released the book as a self-published title, but what's happened since you launched it into the universe? Since I launched it into the universe, it sold 20,000 in the first year. It's, uh, 
which is excellent sales for anyone, but especially for a first time self-published author. I am. Yeah. It's, I was hoping for 10. I, my goal was set at 10. You know, I, I read books that if you can get 10,000, that means your book will be around five years later. So, okay. My first goal was just to kind of hopefully not get beat up. There are people who might say this is a book of workaholic uh, tendencies. Well, yeah, in short-term aspects, five-year crusades, absolutely. I am advocating a short-term sacrifice. If you want to be a doctor, you're going to have to sacrifice anything that's uncommon in this life. You have to give uncommon sacrifice for it, short-term. But people do criticize that. I was thinking that it had maybe had too much of that in it. It also has a lot in it about the secrets that I do, about my own aspects. Every morning I'll go into my sauna, I'll focus on my goals, I'll imagine their mind. I expected to see people come at me hard with, you know, saying this is a little ephemeral, new agey for me. All I can say is, this is my story. Take from it what you want. If nothing else, it's entertaining, okay? But these are the secrets behind there. So what happened then from all of this? People were nice. I found college presidents responding to me. I found winners of national TV programs coming to me. South Korea came to me and published it. China came out and published it. Now Penguin Random House, they bought it and they're taking it over. And so, yeah, the, the journey is, to me, they say, well, that's success. And I think, well, it's kind of like college graduation, okay? Where it's it commenced, but now, now's, now's the start, not the end. Now's, now's when things are starting to happen a lot, little bit bigger. Uh, so That's right. Yeah. I remember getting into business school and thinking, I'm set. And then graduating yeah. without a job and thinking, I'm just starting. This oh, is here's here's your paper. Here's your debt. Now right. go to work. Now let's right. see what you can do with it. So are you actually a gardener? My mother is the greatest gardener. She's a big time gardener. Me, I put the rocks down and I, I built a big garden for my wife to actually do it. My answer is no. Gardening is a metaphor for life. It's a sure. classic metaphor for life. That's what it's used for in the book. However, some of my favorite reviews in this world are people that stumble upon it and say, holy crap, I thought I was reading a gardening book. I love this. I feel so privileged to read. I'm like, I can't believe a gardener likes my book. Right. This is all about finance. You know, It's about achieving your dreams. And so they're the, some of the funniest reviews you'll ever see. You're not over the top with religion in the book, but you do mention faith a lot. Do you believe the financially fortunate have an obligation to share their bounty beyond paying their taxes fully? I really stay in my own space, Paul. I learn to, I like the stoic philosophy, if I can get around to this question this way, where I stay within areas that I control and things that I don't control, I try to give as little of my energy to on a mm. daily basis. It's not my job to tell another person how to spend their money. I'm a total zero on that one. I don't judge others who spend a lot. I don't judge others who, you know, spend it in a way that might be frivolous. I might judge people who don't have it, that spend a lot and get up to their eyeballs in debt and harm <laughs> their families. I'm, yeah, I might, right. I might be a little harsh on that because that's a choice that you make that harms others. But if it's just you in this life, screw your life up all you want. I don't care. Here's a way that you can get it together if you'd like to. So, no, I, I'm not a judger of how, I, I don't think people, I'm not an idealist. I'm not going to moralize about how another person can spend their money. They earned it. It's yours to do what you want. Let me ask you this way. Are you going to pass all your real estate holdings down to your son? Absolutely. Absolutely. I said, you know, and I have a daughter here too. Oh, okay? just apologies to your children. Yeah, no, I do. I, and that's what people always ask that. And, you know, she just didn't, uh, she was busy at the time. She was going to school full time out in Chicago. She's on her way to, to becoming an MD. And so she didn't have time for this. And so you give your kids what they, the room for what they want to do, right? So my son volunteered for this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I heard once somebody said, you know, my, my job is to die broke and I'm going to swallow my last nickel on my deathbed. <laughs> no, no, I don't believe that. I believe that good people need money. I believe in legacy. Absolutely. My gosh, could I provide for my family? Could I give them the power to do good in this world through my own money? Absolutely. I would love to. I love Warren Buffett says I'm going to give them enough to get by, but not enough to do nothing. You know, it's that kind of idea. You want to give people, you want people to be useful. Like, what do you want from your kids? You want them to be totally happy or do you want them to be really, really good people? Which would you choose? Because we always say, well, we want our kids to be happy. How about if we want our kids to be contributors? How about if we want our kids to be fulfilling their potential, having the satisfaction of achievement, having that, that pride of, of something they've accomplished in their lives? 
Well, I, I think the mistake is that those, those two things are mutually exclusive, where I believe that the latter is actually causal of the former. Amen. And so, you know, Amen. people think they want to be happy by being retired and unoccupied, when in fact, as I learned by doing it at 42, being unoccupied leaves you to feel unuseful, which leads you to be depressed. And it's not until you really find something that's worth your time and sacred effort that you come back to feeling pretty good about yourself. Amen. Forget uh, happiness, right? Let's talk about fulfillment. It's a much deeper emotion, right? So edge of capacity, pursuing a potential, pursuing something that's, that's outside of yourself that you believe in. I don't care if it's raising earthworms. Those are the, <laughs> those are the kind of things that will give people right, right. a sense of satisfaction about their days. And it's all about the days, right? Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I've, I've lived both lives where, you know, you, I'm so empowered during some of those years where people say, you know, God, that was a lot of work. You look like a slave out there. I would never work that hard. You guys don't understand what it's like to be comfortable in your skin, striving. You have direction in your life. You're in charge. You're empowered. Bring it. You know, you have that kind of a feeling day after day after day. Those are the heights of life. That's ambition. That's, that's what you get from uh, following ambition. You, you get your best self. So that's what I want for my kids. Absolutely. So you're 50. You've just published a successful book. And for the past couple of decades, you've been giving up your free time to achieve economic independence. What are you going to do with your free time now? Well, I, I've, I'm a guy that, that Googles, you know, has a, has a Google calendar. I still am very, you know, focused on time. I think it's, it's life, you know, the old Benjamin Franklin uh, saying, I get up at 5.30, I, I go to my sauna, I, I focus my mind just like I'm talking about. From 6 to 9, I'm usually in front of my computer doing some sort of creative work towards some of the things that the Penguin has me working on now, you know, the new book. From 9 to 12, that's the time for my wife and I. We sit down, we have tea, we sometimes do a reading, uh, meaning that she'll read something spiritual, like a one-page devotional book uh, or a, a self-help or something like that, something that gets us interested in a dialogue. And then we go to the gym. You know, I, I still do triathlons. And so I, oh, wow. I do that uh, from 12 to 6. That's my time. And what I mean by that is that's the time I can work on whatever I want to work on, the real estate, the books, the stuff like that. It looks like work to other people. But why? I call it engaging my time. You know, my, like I said, my grandfather was a coal miner. That's what work is. Like you and I talking right now, this is what the middle class does when they're not working. All right, this isn't work. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, if you don't have a shovel in your hands around this this neck of the woods, you're not working. Right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, yeah, let's just call, it's not, a, this big blanket term work. I always see these big executives say, I love work. Well, yeah, so would I if I was sitting on top of the mountain telling everybody what to do. But come down here and dig in the coal mines, you know. Right. So, yeah, I use my time. Uh, no doubt about it. I, I also read it. I mean, the evenings, I think those are wasted times. It's so easy to throw in the wastebasket. But after dinner, I really like to sit down and I read, and maybe there's two hours there to read about something that's really curiosities, interest, things that you that can make you grow. Uh, listening to your podcast, I mean, uh, you know, I, I find you fascinating, and I, I want to tell the, the listeners here that I, I'm a big fan. So, oh, thanks. I'll, I'll be following you uh, from this point <laughs> forward. Uh, you're you're awesome. Well, thanks, but man. Those are the kind of things that can add to your life. You know, the, the learning process. Oh. You know, so I, that's that's the evenings for me. John, has this book opened doors for you that you didn't anticipate? Absolutely, Paul. You know, the entire process, if you consider where I'm coming from, is one big unintended consequence. Some of the things that happen, you know, getting a, the book, you know, meeting people overseas, having it translated into other languages, unexpected for sure. One of the coolest things I think that came out of left field on my case was uh, the prison systems. I, I find there's incarcerated individuals writing me letters from prisons. And for anyone who knows the story of the wealthy gardener, that's certainly relevant to the storyline, you know, because the wealthy gardener does work with a lot of underprivileged children. I didn't see that one coming. And I, I think that could be an interesting meaning down the road. I would definitely like to pursue that and uh, try to reach the inmates in prison systems and throughout the country. Those are pretty cool things. People reaching out. I, I, I found a lot of really cool people in this world, you know, supportive people. I you know, I, I kind of expected a little criticism, to be honest with you. There's a lot of, like we alluded to in our conversations, there's a lot of honesty in this book. You know, you call a spade a spade. There's a lot of accountability. There's a, certainly a sacrifice to getting what you want in life. I didn't expect people to really embrace that. And then there was also a spirituality to the book. And I expected people to just pick that apart as well. And 
I found none of that. I found good people and I'm surprised by it all. And I'm exposed to people like you and podcasts and uh, that's certainly stretching me. So it's, you know, it's, it's a whole very, uh, to me, it's an interesting life I'm in right now that came as a result of just a book between me and my son for three years. So the whole thing's unexpected. John, I want to say that if I hoped for my son to embrace one quote from the book, it would be this, your fullest potential is your duty. And I would want him to embrace not only that it's his duty, but it's his opportunity. What lesson would you want your son to embrace most? You know, I think that that's probably exactly what I would want my son to get from it all too, Paul. I, I think that when people see a finance book from a dad to his son, they don't necessarily see the, uh, the intention, uh, the deeper meaning for me. I see getting over your financial condition in life I see that as a purpose far greater than having stuff. I, I really would love to see my son be able to use his full potential, to be able to use his time and choose his, his more meaningful pursuits than just you know chasing a dollar. I think that's the greatest opportunity of winning and money. And so I preach this to him so that he can have a life of empowerment. And if we can control our time, now that's how you live up to your full potential. So without a doubt, I, I really like what you just said right there. And if you ask me inside what's self-actualization and using your full potential, that's the greatest gift of uh, winning at money. Yeah, I agree. I agree. John Sephoric, where can our listeners find out more about you? You know what, Paul? I, I don't have a large platform nor desire for it at the moment. Penguin Random House, they have plans for me. I would say that my story is in the book. There's no question. I can't bear my soul anymore. Uh, so, But if they want to send you an email or actually buy a copy of the book, where should they go? Buy a copy of the book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. All the bookstores will have it this spring. They should have it on pre-order by the time we're doing this. Wealthygardener.com is my website, and that's where I'll do a blog. And that's where I kind of hang out, right there. Right Wealthygardener.com. Right on. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm glad to know you. Thank you for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Okay. Thank you, John Sephoric. Really appreciate you joining us on the show. I really enjoyed getting to know you. His book, ladies and gentlemen, The Wealthy Gardener, Life Lessons on Prosperity from a Father to Son, available now at fine bookstores, by which I mean Amazon and the other 1% of places they still sell books. Hey, if you like what we're doing here on Crazy Money, sure would appreciate it if you would take a minute to go and review us on iTunes. You do that by going to the uh, show page and scrolling all the way down on the phone to where you see the stars and the words that say reviews. And you could write one with the headline saying super funny, super handsome, or super smart and super funny, or super smart, funny, and super handsome. Something like that. Some combination of hyperbolic adverbs and adjectives which tell everybody that this is worth their time. That'd be great. I'd appreciate it. That's all I got to say, except this. Thank you to Mike Carano, editor, producer. Make me sound smart. Bye.